welcome to School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland and really excited to be um, chatting about this topic. It's something that's, you know, I'm um, hearing in my school and right now we adopted a new math curriculum and so I'm kind of like on a math kick especially. So really excited to have Dr. Connie back, but um, I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. Rebecca's going to tell everybody how you can participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Um, if you are watching us live, please do participate by signing into your YouTube account and commenting right alongside the chat. Even if you're watching a little bit later um, at the, than the start of the broadcast or, or not live, watching the recording, you can still comment, and the comments link up to the timestamps of the conversation. So it's really helpful to see how your questions and your thoughts, and we can um, go back to it at any time. So please do comment on YouTube. If you are listening, as many of our uh, podcast followers do uh, on audio only, on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you get um, podcasts, please comment um, either, um, please, first of all, rate and review our podcast. That's really helpful for other people to find us that way. But uh, you can comment in um, on the podcast app itself because we do get those comments occasionally. And then you can also um, either comment on Twitter if you're still hanging in there on Twitter. Um, but I also just started a threads account. So you can use the hashtag psyched podcast at Becca Kamiz on threads. Haven't started the podcast um, handle on threads yet, but we are on there, which is hopefully a kinder, gentler um, space. Not, I, I haven't seen all of you out there yet um, from Twitter land, but either way, Twitter or threads using the hashtag psych podcast. And of course, our Facebook pages, the school psych podcast page or school psych, your school psychologist, you can message us or comment right alongside the post for tonight's episode. So we look forward to hearing from you in all ways and forms and at any time. And now I'm going to hand it over to Eric, who is going to introduce our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Eric Elias, and I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. And we're excited to have Dr. Robin Cotting back with us. Uh, she is a professor of school psychology. Her research interests focus on the intersection of interventions and implementation by developing and exploring the effectiveness of school-based academic interventions, factors that contribute to student responsiveness of those interventions, and strategies to support intervention implementation. And she has authored over 50 articles and book chapters and uh, is pretty involved and innovative in the science of math. And one of uh, her recent books is Effective Math Interventions, A Guide to Improving Whole Number Knowledge. And uh, Welcome, Dr. Cotting. We're excited to talk with you about math and math anxiety and all things math, as they might apply to school psychologists. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, um, I know a lot of us have been pretty engaged in the science of reading sort of stuff online and um, reading a lot about some of the movements and some of the pushback and um and it was newer to me that we have a science of math that is equally as innovative and, and research-based. Um, not that I didn't think that we had a science of math, but you know, there's a, a movement and an online presence, and, um, and I see your name uh, pretty 
attached to uh, some of the articles and, and work that's going on there. Um, as school psychologists, fill us in a little bit on, on the science of math movement and, and what's going on and what's innovative right now. Yeah, um, so I was fortunate enough to uh, work with a bunch of colleagues and we were seeing trends actually in the field where our, so for me, it was, um, there was trainers, as a trainer, there were students who were going in and unable to fulfill their uh, field and practica projects. Um, and that was because there were all these ideas about what should and shouldn't happen in math. And it meant that students were not allowed to do universal screening or progress monitoring or even implement some of the intervention strategies that we had been talking about. And so I was like, what is happening? Um, and kind of uh, chatted with my colleagues across the country, and they were experiencing the same phenomena. And so over several years, we kept you know, in touch, connecting on, you know, where are you? What are you seeing in the schools? What do we need to do about this? And we had periodic conversations about the fact that we need to have a science of math kind of movement in order to help facilitate these um, evidence-based practices in schools. And so finally, we were able to do that. Um, and so it's a really recent movement. We It's an interdisciplinary movement with uh, consultants and trainers and school leaders and special educators and school psychologists and educational psychologists um, who all came together in the effort to try to prevent the same fate, basically, from happening that has happened in reading. Um, you know, I remember going into my son's first grade classroom and being like, what happened to phonics? Like, when did we stop teaching reading? And so I think we were trying to prevent this from happening in math um, in, a, in a broad way. Um, and the group, so the group came together and one of the first things was to address some of these myths that we saw. And one of the, I think, unique things about it is it's not just talking about the evidence base in math instructional practices, but it's also infusing the science of learning in it. And I think that's a really cool place for uh, school psychologists to kind of bring those two things together and promote it. That is a, a that's a, a helpful um, summary too of where where we are. I'm wondering about how within the science of math, you know, we don't, we haven't heard, I, I don't think of um, sort of English lit anxiety or, um, you know, uh, there's sort of general anxiety or performance anxiety in school. Uh, but math anxiety is something that, you know, people talk about a lot that, um, that is a confusing topic in terms of like how it's related to math skill or math ability or perhaps math disability. How did that, how did the history of the conversation about math anxiety come into play? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. There has been a lot of, I think, um, like you said, confusion about the different forms of anxiety that exist. So there's test anxiety, which is related, but not the same as math anxiety. There's statistics anxiety, which is specific to statistics, right? I know there's a lot people talk about um, statistics anxiety. And I think some of that is where a lot of this conversation started and stemmed. Um, and then it evolved in this conversation about math anxiety. And I think we saw um, a lot, we were seeing right now, a lot more conversation about it following um, COVID-19 and the shutdowns. And I think the outcomes that have happened to math, there's some 
theories and ideas that just some other traumas and um, anxieties and other experiences that people were having maybe exacerbated existing math anxiety. And then, of course, we didn't have good math instruction when we had shutdowns or alternative school openings. And so I think this um, percolated to the front, this idea of math anxiety. I certainly um, wasn't, you know, this is a new area that I've delved into and I did it because of the issues that I was mentioning earlier that we were seeing where students were not able to follow evidence-based practices in schools or even engage in their school psych fieldwork projects um, because of what people were talking about with math anxiety. So math anxiety was tied to many of these ideas. And then it came up, you know, do we even know what math anxiety is to your point? And then do we know what we're doing about it? Um, and are the things that we're recommending actually the things that we should be doing to help, um, you know, alleviate it or minimize it? And then I think, of course, if we thought to think about the history, we have to think about this notion that we have generally in, in the U.S. culture, which is, um, I'm not a math person, you know, math doesn't suit me. We certainly don't say that about other topics either, like social studies or reading or science, but we do say that about math. Super interesting. I know that I have questions, but I know that you have some slides and I'm wondering if we should dive into that and maybe that'll answer some, some of those questions and, and drive some of the conversation. Sure. All right, I'm excited. <laughs> Okay, so I am going to um, share my screen and I'll talk a little bit about, so I'm going to follow up on what we started having the conversation about and just talk a little bit about what math anxiety is um, so that we can have a common way to talk about it. So we know math anxiety um, really is about tension, worry, there's a physiological reaction, there's sometimes self-defeating thoughts about performance that interferes with the completion of math tasks or the manipulation of numbers in both academic settings and in daily living. So it's not something that should just permeate the academic setting. It would be something that you would be seeing in your everyday life as well. And when students um, have math anxiety, the implications are that they're less likely to take advanced math courses in high school and make STEM career choices. And those things are important because we know that STEM careers are likely to outpace general job growth and STEM careers often have a higher pay outcome or um, a pay scale that's associated with it than some other jobs. So we don't want students to exclude themselves out of these potential fields um, because of math anxiety. So the other way I'd like to think about math anxiety is that it's multifaceted. So we can think about the cognitive dimension and then there's this physiological and emotional dimension. So the cognitive dimension is about worry, negative expectations, self-deprecating thoughts related to math situations. And then the physiological piece is the um, dread and unpleasant physical sensations that are associated with those math situations. So students feeling really uncomfortable, their heart beating really fast, their palms getting sweaty, and then the idea is that they might not be able to do the task that's in front of them. We also have some data to show that math anxiety can impact math performance, and we'll spend more time talking about that um, in a little bit. Studying, actually, there's some interesting findings that show that students choose not to study for math tests by doing math, and that that's problematic because that's actually one of the best ways to study for math and do well on math tests. Um, math anxiety can impact your self-concept, self-efficacy, students' motivation, and then, of course, their persistence on tasks and even their engagement in tasks. So I think one of the most um, persistent things that we've been able to see in the literature 
is this relationship between math achievement and math anxiety. There's actually five different meta-analyses looking at all the correlative studies between math achievement and math anxiety. And across um, each of those studies, it showed a small to moderate negative relationship. So you can see ranges from 0.25 to 0.40, meaning that um, when there is higher math anxiety, there tends to be lower math achievement. And that relationship between math anxiety and math achievement is consistent across the lifespan, across gender, across uh, racially and ethnically diverse samples within the United States, and across continent of origin. So it's it's persistent and it exists across um, different settings and different countries even. But I think one of the things is we don't want to stop just in looking at that correlation or that relationship. We want to think about, well, what would be facilitating or um, making uh, math anxiety potentially and that relationship with math achievement stronger? And some of these meta-analyses started to tease that apart. So they were able to show that um, the relationship between math anxiety and math achievement is stronger for complex computation and advanced math topics with multiple steps. And then it's also stronger when math is measuring um, something that impacts student grades as opposed to like a high stakes test. In addition, math anxiety can be impacted about student perceptions of teachers' um, quality of math instruction, teacher confidence in teaching math. And I think this one's really interesting. The average student's math anxiety in the classroom in the school um, is actually can, be, can impact math anxiety. So I think to me what that illustrates is that there's all these different factors that are associated with math anxiety and we need to think about what can we do in the school to actually think about the factors that are malleable and address those. So there's certainly individual factors. There are environmental factors that I just mentioned, classroom and, um, atmosphere, instructional tasks actually I think are pretty important um, as long with teachers, math anxiety or self-efficacy. I think the other um, way that I think is important to conceptualize math anxiety is the theories that are associated with it. And again, that helps us to understand this relationship with math achievement. So there are three um, main theories about this relationship. One theory suggests that poor math performance leads to higher math anxiety. And another theory suggests that math anxiety or cognitive worry interferes with math performance. Um, but where the evidence seems to be leading in these relationships is through this bidirectional or reciprocal approach uh, or theory, meaning that poor math performance and experiences may lead to math anxiety and vice versa, that math anxiety might lead to poor math experiences and performance. So um, I'll unpack these theories just a tiny bit. Um, at the top of the slide here, you see that poor math performance leads to high math anxiety. That has been referred to as the deficit theory. And it basically suggests that poor basic number processing results in negative encounters with math tasks, which leads to um, anxiety in future math experiences. On the other hand, the cognitive interference theory, which is also referred to as the dehabilitation anxiety model or the disruption model, proposes that high levels of math anxiety lead to poor math performance, um, specifically negative thoughts, ruminations, worries about math failure, then diminished cognitive capacity, especially working memory, and that that is what is hindering math performance. And then, as I mentioned earlier, that reciprocal theory, this seems to be where we have more evidence presently, is actually that there's this bidirectional relationship between poor math performance and high math anxiety, um, which combines these two theories, the deficit and the cognitive interference theory. Um, However, there's also some interesting data that illustrates that this 
relationship, this reciprocalness is not necessarily uniform, was there um, increasing evidence that math performance, early poor math performance uh, impacts later math anxiety, perhaps more so than the reverse. So I'd like to show a little graphic of kind of what this would look like when you um, look at it as a cycle, right? You first start to see poor math performance. Students enjoy math less. They're less motivated, engaged, and confident. They avoid their math tasks, and then they engage in fewer learning opportunities, and then that produces math anxiety. The other way you could see it is you start with uh, math anxiety. Students enjoy math less. They're less motivated, engaged, and confident. They avoid math tasks, and they have fewer learning opportunities as well, and that leads to poor math performance. So you can see either way, whichever way it starts, you can see that reciprocal nature, but then the points in between are really the points that, again, are malleable that we can start to address. So to me, it's really about thinking about within your schools, like how well is the classroom designed broadly to mitigate math anxiety just at the outset, and then how will your school meet the needs of students with high levels of math anxiety? So two different dimensions in thinking about how to support students in math and how to support students and mitigate math anxiety. So the first thing is to really think about that classroom because we saw this data that illustrates that if the average classroom, average um, performance in the classroom has high anxiety, then we want to be able to address math anxiety at the classroom level. So to me, we can go back to our usual kinds of practices as school psychologists. We want to think first, okay, um, do students experience math anxiety? So having some kind of mechanism or screening in place is possible there. Determining students' math strengths and weaknesses. So again, looking at and utilizing that screening data that might be available in math. And then monitoring student progress are some of those uh, practices that we can keep using in the background that we use in other spaces. And then I like to think about, I'm going to give you... Um, six ways that we can produce supportive classrooms. The first four on this page are really around the math piece and the remaining two are gonna be more around the socio-emotional piece of this. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing is really to provide supported skill practice on tasks that incrementally increase in difficulty as children master the prerequisite skills. And we'll, I'll get a little bit more into this, um, but if you remember, one of the things I said about the um, data on the relationship between math anxiety and math achievement is that that relationship is actually stronger, um, meaning that there's more math anxiety affiliated and lower math achievement when students are given difficult tasks. So it's important to remember that we need to support students uh, incrementally as they are working on new tasks. In addition, we want to be able to include fluency building tactics and core instruction every day. So one of the things that we know about students as they progress through the elementary grades into middle school is that they don't have mastery over foundational skills, and that's preventing them from being able to access and um, start to engage in more novel um, and more higher advanced math tasks. And so we need to include those fluency building tactics and core instruction every day. We need to avoid tactics during acquisition, which means that a student is learning something for the first time that leaves students to figure it out, which sometimes we hear about in math. And instead, we wanna save challenging tasks or problems for when students have mastered the fundamentals of the skill or concept. And then five and six are at the bottom um, in the colored bars here. So we wanna use language that focuses on students working hard to improve their own performance each day or showing growth each day. And we really wanna be able to support them. So help them think through, okay, why was this problem hard for you? And what are the strategies or approaches that you could take 
Um, so really involve them, again, this is related to the second point, in their own learning. So have them reflect on what they learn and work towards achievable short-term goals with supportive feedback from teachers. So that's really about what we can do at the broad level to think about how do we promote supportive classrooms in math. The um, next part is really focusing on the intervention piece. And we just finished a meta-analysis on interventions that address math anxiety. And my colleagues and I found 17 studies, which of course is not a ton of studies. So I wanna make sure that that's clear. Um, but there are 17 quasi-experimental or experimental studies that compare therapeutic and or skill-based interventions with a control condition. And that represented um, 1,786 primary and secondary students. So what uh, math interventions consisted of in these studies was tutoring, cooperative groups, study skill strategies, computer-assisted instruction, and math games. And the therapeutic interventions included journaling, modular cognitive behavior therapy, increasing self-concept, positive self-talk, breathing exercises, and relaxation techniques. And so what we were interested in doing is figuring out, okay, um, if you gave a math intervention, how did that impact math anxiety and math achievement? And if you gave a therapeutic intervention, how did that impact math anxiety and math achievement? So we wanted to make sure all of the studies that we included had a math anxiety outcome, and many of them, but not all of them, also had a math achievement outcome. So from that, we were able to illustrate that the therapeutic interventions, so that group of interventions that we put in a category called therapeutic interventions, um, had a moderate effect size on math anxiety, which is what we would anticipate. Um, that's what they were there for. And then it had a negligible performance on math, which also we might anticipate because we wouldn't necessarily think that a math anxiety intervention is going to address math skill issues. And then on the flip side, we looked at the math interventions and we did the same thing. And so what we found there is that math, anxiety, uh, uh, math interventions actually had a small effect size on math anxiety. So you can see the effect size there is negative 0.32, meaning that we, it minimized math anxiety. And it had a moderate to large effect size on math performance. So to me, this is a really interesting finding because it suggests that by addressing students' math skill needs, we were able to, yes, um, certainly increase math achievement outcomes, but we were also able to address math anxiety. Um, of course, we can't do the flip um, with math anxiety. We can't, you're not going to get a, a bump in math achievement. You do get a moderate effect size for addressing math anxiety. So I think both of these findings have some implications for what we can do practically. So to me, what this means is that we want to begin by looking at students' math skills um, and identify any skill weaknesses and areas to improve and address those and, in, and have that be informed by our data. We want to provide explicit instruction for students um, who exhibit those math difficulties on when and how to use various math strategies. We want to show them how and when to do it um, using checklists uh, for different types of problems where it has all the steps listed so students don't get stuck or hung up on how to start. They don't get stuck in the middle about what to do next. And then they also have a mechanism to check their work, which is one of the things we know is often missing with students who struggle in math. Um, incorporate that 10 minutes of fluency building on simple and complex computation problems, whether that be rational numbers or with whole numbers. And then lastly, include strategies to address math anxiety. So journaling, progressive relaxation, breathing, or positive self-talk. So for journaling, they usually talk about that as being like expressive writing. And you want to do that before the math anxiety task, um, progressive relaxation, 
we use an example where you squeeze a lemon and you start with your hands and then you use your arms and then you do your neck and shoulders and then your feet and legs. Um, we also do a square breathing technique where you breathe uh, around, you trace basically a square and you breathe in and hold for, breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four, and then hold again for four. And then of course you can use some positive self-talk. So reframing maybe some of the physiological symptoms that you're having and thinking, oh, maybe I'm excited to try this math problem or turning something that sounds like it might be um, a negative self-talk item into a positive self-talk item. So those are all choices that you can do. Uh, most of those are choices that you can do before engaging in the math task. And of course, the breathing task you can actually utilize throughout a math task as well. So those are some of the, uh, I think, key take-homes. And I'll, I'll stop my slides now and um, come back to all of you. But that's what I thought would be some key take-homes related to math anxiety and what we can do about it. That was awesome. I loved it. I, I do the, a question that comes to mind, if you all don't mind if I jump right in. Um, when you were first talking about just kind of general best practices for um, whole classroom uh, math instruction, it dawns on me that that math um, well, I guess I should back up the question of homework and how much time elementary school students in particular should spend on homework has been, you know, debated whether it's useful, whether it's not useful, but it seems as though math and maybe math fluency, you know, like fact fluency is one of those things that is largely done outside of school. You know, I don't know if, um, typically, typically teachers, classroom teachers spend a lot of time, you know, having kids work on their flashcards or whatever. Um, but I might be wrong about that. So I guess my first question is, is that a recommendation in the science of math, like that that happens within the school day? And then if not, do we know how how that impacts students who may have, you know, two working parents or who just don't have the support at home um, that might be necessary for them to do that homework outside of school um, and then how that can impact math instruction in school? Yeah, Rebecca, I think that's a great question. Um, I love this question because the whole notion of practice in school in math seems to be um, a big one right now. So many of like the cognitive scientists or math educators, even math educators who um, work at the collegiate level are saying, well, what happened to practice? Um, that practice needs to be part of that math school day. Students have to actually be able to solve problems and we have to watch them solve problems. They need guided. I, I like to talk about practice in three ways. Right? We, talk, we do guided practice, which is when students are learning a task for the first time and we're going to help walk them through that process. Um, we're gonna see how they do it. Maybe they do it with each other and they talk about it and they fill in the blank. Maybe they have a worked problem or a partially worked problem that they're looking at. Then they can engage in that independent practice once they're really accurate. And we wanna give them those opportunities. It doesn't have to be long. I think that's really what's the interesting thing about it. You can do this in two minutes. So I think Brian Ponce and Gary Duan have a school study where they um, have this school-wide practice. It's like basically stop everything and do uh, like math back practice. And um, they showed some really cool outcomes just from two two-minute sessions a day that the whole school just basically stops, drops, and does. 
Um, and so I think that's really neat to think about what are the ways in which we can infuse that fluency-based practice across the board. Um, and then the last one is to do practice that's more in line of cumulative review. So that's where I think about games. So I think in schools, sometimes we see a lot of games or math games happening. And, and that's good, but it can't be the replacement of those other two forms of practice. It's like a third form of practice that helps students generalize their skills or adapt their skills, um, but it's not going to teach them the skills and it might not even help them build fluency. So that fluency piece in school is really important. So in 2010 was, or actually 2009 was the first recommendation. It was an RTI math guide from the Institute for Education Sciences that said it needs to be 10 minutes of fluency building in inner, when kids need tier two and tier three supports, right? And so then, you know, I think um, as we've talked more about this and, and talked about the, you know, the, the importance of a strong tier one, we've talked about like infusing that also into that tier one idea. I feel like, you know, that, that homework question of, um, you know, a, a skilled teacher could know, you know, okay, we've taught this, this particular child, they, they've acquired the skill and they need fluency practice. Like I'm going to send home this particular assignment for fluency. And so maybe that might be, you know, parents, I feel like can do fluency building activities because they don't need to, you know, know how to instruct the skill. It's, it's the practice. They can kind of oversee the practice in some manner. Um, I feel like when that's misused and yeah, fluency packets go home for kids that don't know the thing yet and that becomes frustrating at home. And that's probably where you see these papers and these studies that show that, you know, homework isn't effective in, in many cases. And it probably, I would guess, comes down to how purposeful the homework is and how aligned to, um, you know, where the students at to, to be effective. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I really, I like that idea as well. And, and I didn't actually address Rebecca's homework piece. And we always, I try to say to parents, you know, if we can do 20 minutes uh, or caregivers, if we can do 20 minutes of reading, then we can do 20 minutes of sort of math practice in some way. And it's easier with the younger students, I think, in the elementary level, when you're talking about basic facts, like we can work on that uh, for a long time. There's even some data that show even at the beginning of middle school, that students still need to work on their basic fact practice, you know, to make sure it's really solid so that they're not using up time on challenging problems, trying to figure out what this basic fact is, right? Because they can do the whole problem, but then they get down to it and can't solve it because of that, um, those pieces. So I think that's important. And then Rachel, yeah, um, you're talking really about that instructional match. And I think this is actually a really huge issue, especially when you talk about math anxiety, um, I avoided talking about this here, but uh, certainly people say, uh, you know, timed tests cause math anxiety. We've heard that a ton. That's like the biggest sort of thing out there. Um, I think when I talk about math myths and I and I poll people when I talk to them, that's the one that everybody is familiar with um, across the board. And I think we can definitely um, provide students with the wrong material at the wrong time. And that is what's going to produce the problem. And I think, you know, that's why I wanted to point out that in these correlational studies, and we have like five, like I said, five meta-analyses on this relationship between math anxiety, and math performance, and they illustrate actually that the challenge of the work is actually what is likely to produce or associated with more math anxiety or um, problems that have a lot of steps. So it's not the basic facts that do that, that drive that. So I do think we sometimes do 
uh, misapply the approach, right? By giving students problems that they've never seen before to go home with instead of problems that they know really well um, from an accuracy perspective, but might be slow solving. I see we have a, a viewer question, so I'm going to put that um, up there. But Nick feels like, you know, there's research on interventions for reading difficulties and writing. Um, why aren't there as many studies done on math difficulties? What do you think? I know I, there needs to be, right? I mean, with reading, we had this long history, so it's easy to pull the science of reading. You know, we do have enough. And I think that has been a recent conversation that some of us in the science of math group have had a conversation about, well, how many studies is enough studies? Um, and what do we know and not know? Is it the case that what we do know is just not out there in a way that's digestible? And so then it makes it feel like there's not enough on math. Can we do more? Yes. I think where, um, where I really land is that we do have some good solid data in on how to build foundational skills. And that, because math is hierarchical, that's really the foundation. So if we know this um, and we know how to build foundational skills and we apply those things and we can get some of the real world um, experiences, people doing it in the real world, really saying, yeah, this works. Like, we just have to do this thing that is not that different than what we do in writing and math, uh, writing and uh, reading and math. There's some similar ways that um, kids learn and that we can instruct them, then I think that's really helpful. I teach an interventions course. And one of the things I'm always struck by is I'm teaching like the same basic instructional tactics, uh, uh, no matter what the topic is, right? How you apply it within each different domain it varies, but it's, you know, pretty similar in what we need to do. So yes, we need to have more math studies for sure. We need to have more people interested in math. I think this is the same problem, you know, that popular culture. I'm not a math person, so I don't want to study math. So I think there is some of that too. Yes, we had a Dr. Vander Hayden on not very long ago, and she was explaining how um, it, it's part of the problem may be with uh, the way teacher preparation um kind of people predict that if I, if I like working with young kids and um, I'm doing these like easier, you know, kinds of math, I, I'm going to be okay with it. But then when you really get into elementary ed prep, those foundational classes in teaching math are really hard. And she um, explained some study that set, that talked about the number of elementary education um, teachers uh, becoming teachers, students um, were very uncomfortable with math also, that they like lean into elementary because they like the other parts of elementary education. And I just wonder if um, what you said about the average sort of level of anxiety in the classroom kind of being contagious <laughs> for wow. everyone, it's, um, and how the adults' math anxiety too um, is plays into that. I wonder if the the um, co the cognitive um, cognitive behavioral interventions for math anxiety should really start with the teachers, maybe, or in teacher prep. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea, right? We all we talk about generally that anxiety is contagious, and there's no reason that math anxiety being a form of anxiety would be any different. And, we, and we, as you said, I think that was such a cool 
um, finding that you can see that this average classroom math anxiety has an impact on the individual students and that the teacher um, feeling comfortable with math, even how the student perceives the teacher being comfortable with math can impact math anxiety as well. So it, you make a really good point that addressing the anxiety or the um, self-advocacy of the teacher may be really important and perhaps potentially a first step in trying to sort of change this trajectory. And it, it makes me also wonder about um, what's going on with curricula as well. You know, uh, Rachel, just before we started, Rachel was saying, you know, that she sees some of these problems where you're looking at a, you know, a, a math question and, and the question isn't how many, you know, if I add this many to this many, how many do you have in total? But it's things like, look at the picture. What do you wonder? And I'm thinking, I, I know we're we're probably thinking, you know, we're developing higher order thinking skills or developing, um, you know, some reasoning skills. But I think kids get lost in that kind of minutia and get stuck then when when there isn't structure to to the lessons. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm on the right track, but w- what do you think about that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Eric. I think um, we definitely that is definitely the concern, right? The idea is and, and all of this is well intended, right? So nobody has gone out and tried to change math in a way to um, make students not do better, even though that seems to be the outcome. If you look at the national data, we're not really moving the data in any way. But um, we definitely are wanting to try to produce more higher order thinking. And I think um, that's certainly where the, the picture that comes up as like the first entree into it comes into play. But I think that really can lead to shutting down of math thought and ideas because students don't know where to start. We know that that's a common problem, that students don't know where to start when they're trying to solve a math task um, and they don't know how to check their work. We also know that if a child is experiencing any kind of difficulties with math, that um, they actually, they can't produce the um, visual representation of what that problem would be or map it out. It's something that has to be illustrated for them or got, they have to be guided through and then they can do with additional supportive practice. Um, so we know that, you know, visual representations are ways that kids can solve these problems that they're getting, but they have to know how to produce them. Just like math talk, you can't just make up math talk. Math talk has to be modeled. So we, we call that think alouds, but those think alouds have to be modeled for the student and the student has to practice them and then they can apply them themselves. So we know already that they need to have those scaffolds in place in order to do this higher order thinking. And we actually know that if the student actually has mastered all the component skills to do a challenge problem, that they're going to do much better at that challenge problem because they have all the pieces there. Now they just have to move them around. Um, They can think about them with the other prior knowledge that they have. And that's how they produce that higher order thinking. It happens in the order that I think you were leading to, which is you start and you provide the students with the opportunity to explicitly understand what it is that they're doing. Then they can connect it to the prior work and then they can become accurate and fluent. And then they're able to adapt and do novel problems. 
It's so interesting to me because it seems like the same people that are on board for like science of reading stuff and they understand that you need these basic foundational skills to access these bigger pictures of comprehension. But then these same people kind of turn around and say, oh, you know, fluency doesn't matter or knowing your facts doesn't matter as long as you can figure it out. And like this is the and it's just kind of interesting to me that. I don't know if there's a perception that math is a totally different learning experience, like you have a, a math brain and a reading brain or something. But a lot of this sounds a lot like, um, and we've had Dr. Burns on to talk about aptitude by treatment interactions versus skill by treatment. And it seems like some of these math lessons are focused on like developing their reasoning or developing their working memory or their spatial awareness. I've seen lessons with like cubes and then they uh, you know, show a, a slide of a geometric figure with cubes, and then they take it away, and then the students have to, you know, tell reconstruct the figure. Or and I'm just kind of like, I'm not. It seems like yeah, it's going for teaching these abstract kind of cognitive skills, as opposed to teaching the the foundational skills involved with math. And while it might make sense that yes, we use reasoning, but we know from a lot of those studies that teaching these cognitive skills is not an effective way to get there. You, you teach the academic skills, right? Is that kind of the same? <laughs> yeah, it's the same. I'm mad I talk about this. Uh, we've done that before. Yeah, you have this, the, if you're, the best way to solve a math problem is to teach kids math. Um, so, I mean, I think that was, it's cool that it was illustrated in our meta-analysis where we were like, hey, you can actually mitigate some math anxiety if you just address the math issues that are happening. And we can do that pretty well if we just, you know, stick with those basic ideas uh, about how kids can learn math. So, yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, I don't, I think People are pretty, I guess you're right, there's camps, like people really want this higher order thinking. And I think, like I said, I think that that is, a, a, you know, a valuable thing to make, want to make sure that kids have, you know, really good thinking strategies. But is that the same thing as trying to teach kids math? And I don't know when you're, when you're explaining it the way you did, Rachel, and some of those experiences that students are having. As far as curriculum, um, and we talked a little bit before we went on air, kind of the years kind of older curriculums and there's kind of maybe like new age curriculum. So do you feel like this is the direction that a lot of the newer curriculums are going is towards this kind of reasoning, productive struggle type of thing? And is that a reaction to what people are looking for or where, where is this coming from? Is this a shift that we're seeing or is it just hit or miss? Yeah, so I think this has been a long time in coming. I mean, we've been talking about math reform since the early 2000s. Um, I don't, I mean, I think when we changed the math standards, so NCTM uh, did something with math standards in 2006, and then we had common core standards change. And then I think some of this is a reaction to just addressing the common core standards. You know, we're one of the few countries in the world that have this battle about conceptual and procedural and that they fight each other. Um, from the basic, the background, adding it up report from Kilpatrick uh, and colleagues from the National Research Council in 2001, there is an intertwined rope with, um, you know, productives uh, with, um, I was going to say disposition. So uh, ideas about math and feeling good about math enrolled with conceptual and procedural understanding that they're all tied together. They're like um, dependent on each other. 
Then there was the National Math Panel Report from 2008, and it illustrated that again and said um, these skills are mutually important uh, and they are dependent on one another to build um, basic math understanding. But I'm surprised always that very few math educators are familiar with either of those two background reports. And those are the two biggest white papers that exist on math education. So I think that's interesting in and of itself. The curricula conversation actually happens in the National Mathematics Advisory Panel. They called them student-centered and um, teacher-directed approaches and that they were pitted against each other. And again, there was a conversation about how, no, we actually want to have both of those ideas. We want to have teacher-directed instruction and we want to have some student-centered you know, activities as well. We want the blend. So I'm not sure where the blend is. I think we've lost the blend. Um, so I'm not, it doesn't seem to be where we are. We, we've had studies that actually looked at basic principles like explicit instruction, opportunities for practice, um, opportunities for immediate feedback to correct misconceptions, because there's so many misconceptions that I see now um, in math, um, using data to inform instructional planning or progress monitoring, like all of those ideas have been tested in some of the, I think, previous generation curricula, and they were missing from those curricula in, in large swaths. Um, so yes, I'm seeing more of the folk, uh, like overemphasis on concepts um, while you know, really not including ideas about procedures. And what we know from the literature is we actually need to intersperse the two. So there are cool studies. And I guess to the earlier question, the studies are interdisciplinary, so we can't find them in one place. Like all the math studies, they're in a lot of different disciplines. And maybe that's part of the challenge, right? We have to like bring them all together. So some of these studies, um, like done by Riddle Johnson and colleagues, have been looking at this relationship between conceptual and procedural. And they were able to illustrate that, that if you intersperse both in the same lesson, that that's going to be a better outcome um, than if you don't. So I, I think, um, I, yeah, I don't know. What happened to that idea? But that's not where where uh, at least publishing companies are. And, um, you know, maybe that's something we have to contend with that's different. Yeah, I mean, you reference like um, IES and, and whatnot. And like I, I've looked at the practice guides and whatnot, and they're yeah. awesome. And they've got a lot of great resources. And yeah, it says right there. And so in my mind, I'm like, you have this legitimate like government funded kind of agency that's like reviewed all these things just you know like the uh, the national reading panel and and uh, you know they'd have people that have come together and it says you know fluency building is important and, and yet it's kind of like lost in translation like you said most people don't know about it or pick up some random white paper from other organizations that maybe aren't as you know <laughs> sound um that say something a little bit different. And yeah, it's just, it's interesting to me. I don't know <laughs> where it's coming from. Um, we had some questions um, too. I'm looking a little bit. Hold on. <laughs> um, okay. So Nick had a good question. Um, do you think that representation in math or lack thereof leads to math anxiety? Um, you know, some people think that math can be woke. Is that a real thing? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm, it's hard because I don't know precisely what Nick is referring to um, when he describes representation and being woke. But I do think that has come up. I It's being, um, I think if he's talking about 
Are we, is math accessible? We certainly know that math has not been accessible, especially at the middle school, high school level, um, in, the, in how schools have looked at algebra readiness and then their access to algebra and even school districts that have algebra available. So if this is what he's talking about, we know that that's definitely, there's a national problem related to access to um, algebra classes and some higher order math classes as well. Um, and um, I think that has been utilized or is recognized as a challenge um, and people are trying to address that. But a lot of it is trying to remove some of the barriers in order to access it and making sure algebra is available everywhere. And it's not, and there seems to be also some socio, uh, sorry, socioeconomic issues related to whether or not algebra is present or not present. So I do think that that's a thing. We have to make sure everybody has access to algebra and higher order math classes and that there is no gate to them. Um, so that all students can can have the opportunity to participate in them. That's certainly something that we need to do. Um, and that, you know, should be happening across the board. I'm, I'm not positive, but I also wonder if he's referring to um, a, a, a lack of diversity in um, representation of black and brown teachers as well. And so um, without black and brown teachers as role models um, for math instruction, do black and brown children um, have, or might they have even more math anxiety than um, kids who look like their teachers? Sure. I haven't seen the data break down that way, but I'm certainly, when you don't have black and brown teachers in school and you're not seeing those teachers in, your, in, in charge of your math classes, then that is going to present a barrier. Certainly we know that happens. Yeah. And uh, Brandon asked a question. Uh, I think we were talking about this before the show um, that uh, language instru or math instruction can be very oral and language heavy. And that impact then can, um, you know, can impact students with who don't have good reading skills or English language learners, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, Brandon's exactly right. So one of the things that we probably aren't doing a good enough job is recognizing that math is another language and there's a lot of jargon related to math. And one of the key aspects of promoting effective math instruction and math intervention is actually to, to address vocabulary math um, by explicitly teaching that vocabulary and doing so in, in multifaceted ways. Um, using the appropriate math vocabulary, sometimes there's like a history in math where people cut corners on uh, and use, um, you know, not the pro proper terms for the math language. And that actually doesn't promote understanding. So including math language is part of the conversation that we're having. There's also some um, really neat studies that have been done on how to make word problem solving be more accessible because we run into the same thing um, with cultural and linguistical differences that students don't really understand what the problem is. The problem isn't relatable, right? If the math problem is not relatable, then how are you going to actually do the math to solve the problem? So um, encouraging students to actually use, to code switch across languages, um, to work in pairs um, and be able to do that, um, to build their own word problems that make sense in their own cultural and lived experience backgrounds. I like that, uh, the building of, of their own word problems. Like, that's pretty cool. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um, all right. I know we're, we're getting close to end time, and I'm looking for kind of any last-minute questions. But I just, in uh, the study, the, the meta-analysis that you did, I just, um, 
that's like brilliant. Like, I just love that you looked at it in that way. And, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, your results make sense to me. Um, and it's just cool to, to see it play out and um, that you were able to do that. So I just thought it was a cool study. <laughs> just side, side note. But um, last call for um, questions and comments for sure um, before we kind of wrap up a little bit. But Eric and Rebecca, do you have any thoughts too? I do. I'd love to squeeze in one question, um, and it's the question I kind of uh, asked in the email, Dr. Cotting. But so at school psychologists out there watching, how can we tease apart for our teachers and for our schools the differences between math anxiety in a classroom and skill? I mean, I think we have a good sense of how to um, – measure math skill, but then what do we do to figure out how much of that is impacted by that bi-directional potential math anxiety? So I think this is, um, the best way to do this, I think, is from looking at it from a prevention lens, because although it's um, possible, and, and some of the studies that have looked at this have recommended screening even using one-item screeners, and there's um, one of these meta-analyses, um, uh, Barroso and colleagues actually looked at all the assessment tools available, and um, the one-item measures worked just as well for the elementary level, um, not as much for the adolescent age group, um, but... Um, it's hard to really have that embedded in your universal screening system, I feel like, because there's so many other things that have to happen. So to me, the best way to address this is really try to address the um, those uh, math anxiety issues at the classroom level, making that a supportive math classroom environment. You can infuse what we're doing right now. We have a study funded by the Spencer Foundation where we're trying to actually look at using relaxation and breathing in the classroom context as part of the math task. So they do that um, before they engage in a math task and then during, they do some breathing during the math task and we're trying to see what the outcome of that might be in mitigating it just at the prevention level. And then certainly I think if we're seeing, I mean, it's easier when you're uh, talking about intervention, right? Cause then you're actually having a more smaller group kind of situation. So you can see when the math becomes the math anxiety piece. And then you can think about how to infuse some of those practices, like whether or not you can use the positive self-talk, um, relaxation breathing, or whether some of those more cognitive behavioral um, module strategies need to be infused as well. So I like the idea of going uh, across the board with some prevention focus. And I know that we talked about this last um, episode too, but I just, yeah, I find it interesting and in, what we know about anxiety and avoidance of anxiety and how that exacerbates things when we ha come into these concepts of, um, you know, okay, don't time the kids ever because that'll cause math anxiety or, or don't, you know, don't, <laughs> don't do math as much or, you know, avoiding the thing that supposedly is anxiety provoking, like that's going to <laughs> um, make, make it worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that just like doesn't make sense to me. But that's like the thing that I hear probably most often is we can't time them because or if you're going to time them, like do it sneakily so that they don't know they're being timed. And to me, like at least with my kids, I time my kids <laughs> with, with some of this work. And, um, you know, it's done in a low stakes safe environment that yeah. you know they're and they're used to it. And so they're like focused and they're like engaged and they're excited for it and they want to 
do better than they did last time. And um, it motivates them that that clock, they know that that clock's going and they're down to business and they're going as quickly as they can because of the clock. And it's, it's fun. It's a game to them. And I just feel like if it's presented in a way that it's not a, you're going to fail if you don't get this, or everyone's going to know your score and they're all going to laugh at you, or, you know, you just expose them to timing. It's just practice, you know, practice and exposure to, being timed and I feel like working under pressure that's kind of a a good skill in all aspects maybe not just math um so yeah yeah I think that I love how you describe that as low stakes it's always been exciting for the students that I've worked with too they like to graph their performance again they like to be involved in their own learning um we actually have a study Katie Mackey and Zaslowski and I where we actually just tested these these conditions out and actually, um, the students, there was no difference in math anxiety among overtimed conditions with simple or complex computation tasks. Where we saw higher math anxiety in general was on complex tasks. And with those kids that already, you know, going in had higher math anxiety, they actually um, also had higher math anxiety during the covert timed tasks. So they actually did better under the explicit time task. So it was more like, how long are you going to make me do this really hard stuff? And that was more anxiety provoking than actually explicitly saying, well, here's how much time you have uh, in order to do this task. Very cool. Um, okay, like this was a great conversation and um, I'm just looking at the time and seeing that, that we're close to wrapping up. Um, so Eric, you unmuted. Did you have anything else to say before we... Uh... No, just same thing. I really appreciate this. And I love the meta-analysis. And um, this gives so many practical ideas, too. These are There's a lot that we can take back to our schools from, from this discussion. So thank you, Robin. Thank you. I'm so glad. Yes, thank you so much. And, and thanks, everyone out there, too, for being here. And then I'm just looking at our schedule. Um, our next episode looks to be 1119 and we have Dr. McClure coming on and he's going to talk about AI in school psychology and his AI platform. So I think that'll be a really interesting one too. So we hope to see everybody tune in for that. But thank you so much. Good night.